Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and this past Tuesday was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and to commemorate, we're preaching a five-week sermon series through the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas summarize the Reformation's basic theological principles. We affirm these five solas because we believe that they are central to the Christian faith. As of 2017, the church, the body of Christ, is divided. The Reformation divided the church, and the church remains divided. But we should not assume that this will always be the case. The gospel demands unity. And so we must not passively embrace the division. Our goal in, in preaching through these solas is unity through clarity. We want to say what we're for, not just what we're against. The Reformation was a good thing, but it was also regrettable. It would have been better if the Reformation had never been necessary, right? Schism was never the goal. The goal was reform. And that mission is still underway. And so uh, we should look back on the Reformation and praise God for correcting the error, but we are still responsible for building bridges across denominational lines until we attain to God's vision for the global church. This week we're discussing, as Kyle said, the Reformation doctrine called Soli Deo Gloria. God's glory is our ultimate ambition. God is sovereign over everything, and all of life is to be lived for his glory. We live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. And this encompasses everything. The Protestant reformers taught that every moment, everything, every activity was to be sanctified unto the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so what is glory and what does it mean to glorify? The Hebrew word commonly translated as glory is derived from a root word suggesting heaviness. In fact, ancient Israelites would refer to rich people as heavy in wealth. Today, we might say they are loaded. Really. So to, to say that God is glorious is to say that he is loaded with power, beauty, goodness, justice, and honor. God is heavy with those things. He has them in abundance to the nth degree. He has them in ways that we cannot, cannot even begin to imagine. He is so powerful, so beautiful, so good, so just, so honorable that everything powerful, beautiful, good, just, and honorable is merely derivative. And so God is not just glorious. He is the source of all glory. So what does it mean to glorify God? And why does he ask for that? Why does God seek glory for himself? I thought the Christian God was supposed to be selfless and humble, right? Well, first of all, the Christian God is triune, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this mutually glorifying communion of persons. And so when God seeks glory for himself, it's not as though he swallows it. God, God's glory is not a black hole. God's glory radiates. When, so the Father is not looking for glory from the Son. The Father is looking to glorify the Son. And the Son is not looking for glory from the Father. The Son is looking to glorify the Father. And the same goes with the Holy Spirit, which means that God is fundamentally unselfish. Within the Trinity, there is humility and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. God is the most glorious thing in all of the universe, and he has made us glory-hungry because he wants to satisfy our desires. He wants to be the source of our satisfaction. Not even the Astros, as, as awesome as that was, can be the source of our satisfaction. He has given us longings that only he can satisfy in order to welcome us into his glory. To glorify God, then, is to join the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their mutually glorifying communion. I want you to catch that. To glorify God is to join the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their mutually glorifying communion. That's our greatest privilege as human beings. And so paradoxically, when God commands us to glorify him, it's, it's actually an act of love and humility on his part. It's a welcoming into the divine life. We get to glorify God. Before he was a reformer, Martin Luther was a monk. And as a monk, he performed monastic vows, renouncing economics, renouncing family life, renouncing government. In his day, people generally viewed the church as the place where real spirituality was practiced. But when Luther rediscovered the doctrines we'll be discussing today, he realized that God worked through his people precisely within these realms, economics, family life, government. And so he, he discovered that the, the popular sacred-secular divide was actually unbiblical. And so the Reformation was a recovery of God-centered faith and practice. This theological conviction nurtured public education, civic welfare, economic growth, a revival of music and the arts, and you, you may have heard of the Protestant work ethic. Thanks to the Reformation, we can peer into history and observe the manner in which a corporate concern for the glory of God can catalyze moral and social transformation. Many historians look back at the Reformation with astonishment at its influence upon the culture. Eugene Rice said the following, the Reformation's views of God and humanity measure the gulf between the secular imagination of the 20th century and the 16th century's intoxication with the majesty of God. We can exercise only historical sympathy to try to understand how it was that the most brilliant intelligences of an entire epic found a total supreme liberty in abandoning human weakness to the omnipotence of God. What he's saying is actually more simple than how he says it. Um, in other words, 
the Protestant church recaptured the sense that all of life was somehow related to God and his glory. Simply by recapturing a robust theology of the sovereignty of God over the most mundane thing, the Protestant church became an energetic force for social and moral transformation. The Reformation was not primarily a social or political revolution, but it proved that living life for the glory of God has profound implications on the world around us. Let's read Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To the only God be glory, it says. Soli Deo Gloria. At the time of the Reformation, the Christian religion had become overly man-centered. The Roman church had lost its emphasis on the grace and glory of God. The Christian life had become a constant chess match with a wrathful and vengeful God. And the authority of man's word had begun to undermine the authority of God's word. And the church today, I I think, has similar man-centered problems, but I think we've veered off in a different direction. Our God is not wrathful and judgmental. He's like a cool dad who buys us beer. He doesn't really care what we do or how we do it. He just wants us to have a good time, get into a good college, get a good job. That's man-centered. We also have a man-centered celebrity culture, even, even here within the church. You will struggle to pull off a Christian conference if your main speakers don't have book deals or podcasts or megachurches. Our man-centered culture does not want to hear from the small-town pastor in his 90s who speaks with a twang and spends his entire adult life serving the same 80 congregants. Humility does not sell, even within the church. Our corporate worship is often man-centered. Evangelicals, that's us, we tend to evaluate our corporate worship experience as we would evaluate a consumer product. We need eyes to see beyond the people on this stage, beyond the people in this pulpit. Corporate worship is not a concert. It's not a lecture. Corporate worship is about God. God giving grace to his people. God calling us to worship, receiving our praise, hearing our prayers, pronouncing forgiveness, teaching us, nourishing us, feeding us, sending us back into the world to live for his glory. God is the lead actor here, not man. Now, let me confess something along, along these lines. On, on Sundays, when I leave this sanctuary and walk into the parking lot to load my kids in our minivan, do you know what I'm asking myself? Did, did the sermon today check all my boxes for what a good sermon should be? Was the music good? Were there typos on the slides? Why did it seem dead today? Is it because it was rainy? 
Maybe, maybe the opening song wasn't energetic enough. Those are man-centered questions. And so instead of asking myself those things, I should be telling myself, the Lord met me here today in his word, in his liturgy, in his people, in the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Lord, for meeting me here today. The sermon was a snoozer. The music was not as good as the music at the church down the street, but I didn't come here for those things. I came here for you, and you meet me every time. God wants us to see him working through the people in this room, but, but we're often too busy criticizing the quality of the product. And this perspective is man-centered. It robs God of glory. Soli Deo Gloria was the battle cry of the Reformation, and it should be our battle cry every single Sunday. Okay, let's bring this into everyday life. What does Soli Deo Gloria mean for you and for me in the context of everyday life? First of all, God's redemption is total. There is nothing in all creation untouched or unaffected by the kingdom of God. He is Lord over everything. Great things and small things, celebrated things and mundane things. This means Christians are free to worship, serve, glorify, delight in God, not only here in the context of corporate worship, but every other day as well. Tomorrow, as you cook breakfast, drive to work, change your first diaper of the day. Because God's kingdom reaches into every nook and cranny of our existence, everything can be done as an act of worship. We can hardly imagine the latent power and potential of this doctrine. When the church believes this fully, the world changes. That's what happened after the Reformation. Labor became a sacred thing. Literacy and education exploded in the Western world. Revolutions in technology, scientific discovery, and modern medicine were triggered. The, fundam the fundamental goodness of art was recaptured. Political participation increased. Our society was built upon the Reformation doctrine of vocation. And we'll define that in just a bit, but if I may be so bold, you can purchase a Bible in English because of the Reformation. You vote for your government officials because of the Reformation. You value freedom and equality as much as you do because of the Reformation. If you went to public school, you did so because of the Reformation. If you have a smartphone, you can thank the Reformation. And that one's more of a stretch, <laughs> but I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, let's discuss this further. In the 1500s, a Protestant baker was forced to flee Hungary on account of his beliefs. He ended up settling in central Germany, and his descendants were known throughout the region for their musical skill. Now, the great-great-grandson of that Protestant baker was Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest composers in the history of music. 
Bach's faith informed his life, his career, and his view of music. He believed that music was a powerful tool for the proclamation of the gospel, and he believed that music brought glory to God. In fact, he called music a harmonious euphony for the glory of God and said the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. Most of his musical works are signed with the initials SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. In the words of one historian, the beauty, love, grace, and glory of God gave Western civilization something to sing about. It compelled Bach to compose. Bach's thoughts, Bach's thoughts, on music were derived from Reformation theology. The Protestant reformers believed the performance of any honorable vocation was an act of service to God. Because God is sovereign, all beauty, everything good, is sacred. Every good and creative work is derived from the author of everything good. This is the doctrine of vocation or calling, it's also sometimes called the priesthood of believers. The, the, the doctrine of vocation provides a blueprint for all of life. It answers a, que a, a question Christians should be asking. How can I serve God? We're often tempted to think service to God means becoming a pastor or a missionary or starting a nonprofit. But that was not the Reformation mindset. That's not the mindset that changed the world. In the late Middle Ages, the doctrine of vocation really only applied to the religious elite. Everyone else just had a job. The priests had a vocation, and everyone else had a job. But the reformers expanded that narrow understanding. They said that every person, from the king down to the milkmaid, was called by God to their particular vocation. Here's a quote from John Calvin. God has appointed to all their particular duties in different spheres of life. It will also be no small alleviation of his cares, labors, troubles, and other burdens when a man knows that in all these things he has God for his guide. The magistrate will execute his office with greater pleasure. The father of a family will confine himself to his duty with more satisfaction, and all in their respective spheres of life will bear and surmount the inconveniences, cares, disappointments, and anxieties which befall them when they shall be persuaded that every individual has his burden laid upon him by God. Hence also will arise peculiar consolation, since there will be no employment so mean and sordid, provided we follow our vocation as not to appear truly respectable and be deemed highly important in the sight of God. No employment is not highly important in the sight of God. Provided your vocation is not dishonoring to God, he has called you to it. Even those menial, mundane tasks that, that sometimes you think are beneath you, those things have meaning too. Every moment of your week, whether working or resting, eating or sleeping, creating a spreadsheet or changing a diaper, 
can be lived to the glory of God. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or the founder of a nonprofit. God cares about your Monday through Saturday. He delights to see you doing a good job. When your work becomes an act of worship, that is the essence of soli deo gloria. When your work becomes an act of worship. The desk in your office is an altar. It's where you offer much of your life to God. The changing table in your nursery is an altar. It's where you offer much of your life to God. That's my third reference to diapers. <laughs> the countertop in your kitchen is an altar. It's where you offer much of your life to God. If you work in the woodlands or spring, your dashboard is an altar. <laughs> It's where you offer much of your life to God. When God's glory takes its rightful place within our list of priorities, everything about life is made sacred. Today, our society has, in many ways, hollowed out this doctrine of vocation. Our society has emptied it of its power. Um, we still work hard, but we don't work before the face of God. We don't work as an act of worship. We either work to glorify ourselves, or we just work to pay the bills. Rather than working hard because God has given us purpose, many of us try to find our purpose in our work. But this produces, I think, a love-hate relationship with work. We're torn between work as a source of meaning and work as a necessary evil. We need it, but we're constantly looking to, to escape it. And so we've replaced the doctrine of vocation with a doctrine of vacation. Nailed it. <laughs> That doesn't have to be true of Christians. We can enjoy our work without idolizing our work. Jesus recovered the fundamental goodness of labor. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were called by God to work the garden. But when they sinned, the earth began to produce thorns and thistles. Work was still good, but now it was also a burden. Here's the thing. The work of Christ, who is the second Adam, has placed us back in the garden, spiritually speaking. Sin has not yet been eradicated, but sin has been dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb, he revealed himself to be the true Adam of a new creation. We are reconciled to God, and now we get to work the way Adam and Eve were called to work, before the face of God. We all get to tend our little corner of God's garden, and God gets the glory. Again, God is sovereign over everything, and all of life is to be lived for his glory. We live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. God's glory is our ultimate ambition. And that seems like an abstract idea, but really, Soli Deo Gloria is one of the most practical doctrines imaginable. 
God sees everything. He cares about everything. Even the mundane things you don't care about, they can be done as an act of worship to his glory. God wants them done that way. And so every Christian is a priest. Every Christian is in full-time ministry, in a sense. You don't have to quit your job to truly serve God. You don't have to go live in the mountains to truly find God. He's right here in the ordinary stuff of life. He delights to see you going about your daily tasks with joy and purpose and humility and contentment. He wants you to enjoy your life. I truly hope that doesn't sound strange to us. We should be able to say that without being lumped in with the charlatans on TBN, right? God wants you to enjoy your life. To his glory. In the words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. After a long day's work, when we come together at a dinner table and we break bread and we drink wine and we laugh and we cry and we pray and then we do the dishes, God is pleased. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You don't have to be somebody else you don't have to do something extraordinary and spectacular in the eyes of the world. If you do your work faithfully, if you know and love the people that God has placed right in front of you, you are doing what God considers significant. Your ordinary life, lived by faith, is the life that glorifies God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see every moment as an opportunity to join in your divine communion, to glorify you with our everyday lives. Give us faith to see the myriad of ways that we can live our days as an act of worship. Give us faith to see that. And glory be to the Father and to the Son to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So every Sunday, God welcomes his children to come share a meal with him. This meal is called Communion, or the Lord's Supper, and it's for everyone who, is, who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. At the communion table, God communes with us, and we commune with one another. Um, as we partake of the bread and the cup, we receive Christ and all his benefits, we have our faith nourished, and we get a foretaste of the heavenly feast that awaits us. In the centuries leading up to the Reformation, the Roman church had begun to limit the people's access to the Lord's Supper. More often than not, the church would passively observe as the priests actually partook of the bread and the cup. In order to come themselves, lay people had to jump through a number of hoops, and, and as a result, most people only receive the Lord's Supper once annually. The Reformers challenged this practice, and, and so one way, one important way we can commemorate the Reformation is to come to this table together today. And as we come, we pray to the Lord with one voice. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive this sacrament as a sign and seal of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Heavenly Father, thank you for this bread and this cup, the body and blood of Jesus. Enable us to eat and drink in faith, to grow up into the fullness of Christ, and to be conformed into the image of his self-giving love. Amen.